Um, with that as a prayer, as we turn to scripture, that we might see Jesus. We're going to turn to a text that doesn't mention Jesus. And uh, hopefully, uh, by the end, we still will see Jesus through this text, this gift of God in his word, in his revelation. Um, Genesis 32, 22 through 32. I don't know if you've noticed, but at the university, the cool word these days is hybrid. Everything is hybrid. Church services are hybrid. Some can show up in person, some cannot. This could be a bit of a hybrid moment. I am... in some sense, this is, comes from my work as a university chaplain of leading people in looking at scripture together more in a less sermony, more Bible study kind of a feel. Um, and so hopefully by the end, it will feel like we've moved a little bit from Bible study towards something that, I don't know, feels more sermon-esque. But man, it'll be hybrid. So... Here we are. This is what happens when you kind of get a call from Trinet on whatever day that was. It was not that many days ago. <laughs> anyway, it looks like you have it on the screen, so I'll read from there um, in case the versions are different. This is from Genesis chapter 32. Uh, maybe you know where this fits in the story, but um, Jacob was born with his brother Esau. Da -da -da -da, lots of things happened. He went away. Uncle Laban met Leah met Rachel, wanted to marry Rachel, married Leah, then married Rachel. You know the story, maybe. Then he finds his way back. On his way back, now he's got two wives and 11 sons and a daughter and so many other things, uh, animals, right, flocks, herds, uh, sh shepherds, people uh, with him, including parents of some of his children besides Rachel and Leah with him. Um, and he sends them all across this ford to the other side. And then uh, I guess that's where we are right now. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, doesn't mention Dinah, his daughter, she was born, uh, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak when the man saw that he could not overpower him he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man then the man said let me go for it is daybreak but Jacob replied I will not let you go unless you bless me the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, Peniel, God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip, 
And now this, therefore to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so I'm going to put on my more Bible study-ish hat. And we're going to look at the section of text starting much earlier. We're going to start, so Genesis, as I've told students over 15, 16, 17 years almost now. Genesis, as you kind of look at Genesis, has this interesting division. It has 10 times the same significant word used, toledot. Um, first one is in two, Genesis 2, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 4. And many commentators kind of say, we often see the phrase, like, these are the generations of. And so you see that, um, that here in Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. This is in that Toledot section. These are the generations of, or this is the account of Abraham's son Isaac. So what I would do with students is that we'd kind of, okay, well let's at least kind of take a big swath of this all together. And because you're here, and some of you at least, maybe every single one of you knows this story, you know, I didn't ask you ahead of time to read the entire five chapters. Lucky you, maybe. But we'll find out how much you know. So let's start with Jacob and his birth. What do we know about Jacob? And about his birth. Sorry? He's the, he's the second born. Who was the first? Esau. What does Esau's name mean? Hairy or red. It kind of seems to have double use. Sometimes it's called Edom, and that's why hairy and red both seem to be mixed in there. So he was the second son, but he was not the second son born a year later or two years later or ten years later. He was the second son as a twin, and he was named Jacob, which means something like deceiver or grasper, right? So he was, so Esau comes out, I don't, we don't want to get too visual here because it's not maybe a great Sunday morning activity, but Esau comes out of the birth canal, and Jacob is grasping onto his, onto his ankle, right? So it's like the, the name Jacob he was given is something like grasper and it takes on a bit of overtones of deceiver and we'll, we'll kind of talk about where that name goes in the story so he never says of course my name is Jacob but his parents say we'll call him Jacob look at that grasping that he has okay so we have Jacob that's like the first four verses of this whole Toledo right Jacob and Esau and mom and dad which are where is mom and dad's names Isaac and Rebecca fascinatingly in the Hebrew, Rebecca, R-B-K, if you think of those three big letters, and then blessing is Baraka, and um, birthright is Bakara. So like all these words, if you're reading in the Hebrew, are kind of fascinatingly and fun tied together, that somehow blessing and birthright and Rebecca are all, I mean, who knows exactly if that's supposed to mean anything, but it's kind of fun for those of us who actually look at the Hebrew. Just could be everybody in this room if you felt like taking one of these free classes during the pandemic. Just saying. Okay, so then the very next story, Jacob and Esau are born, or Esau and Jacob are born to Isaac and Rebekah. And like the next little sentence is, and they grew up. And so then the very next part, this is in chapter 25. If you have Bibles that you want to open, you're welcome to follow along, um, more or less. The boys grew up and Esau became a skilled at what? Hunter. And Jacob was more or less in the tents with mom. 
right? And it says it has this really terrible, maybe, line that Rebecca loved Jacob. We kind of see over the course of their life story some of the fruit of that um, privileged kind of oriented love, right? Uh, Jacob and Esau each have their favorite parent or their parents have their favorite kid. I'd like to say that to my children, too, uh, which one of them is favorite. I'm sure we, uh, we wouldn't do that, right, to our kids. Like, hey, you're my favorite, and then say it in front of each other. Um, it's just not good parenting practice, it seems to me. Okay, so Jacob, Esau, born, hunter, and the one who stays in the tents. And so the very next story is about the uh, bakra, right, which is the birthright. What happens? Quick summary, anyone? Should I give it? Yeah? No, that's, that's the uh, birthright. This is the, oh, sorry, that's the blessing. This is the birthright. So first, Esau's out hunting, and he comes home famished, and Jacob's at home, his boy, stirring the pot. That has double entendre, as you'll find out, right? He's stirring the pot. That's actually not in the Hebrew. That's just English. Um, but he's stirring the pot at home, and, and he's got this big stew coming in, and Esau says, I'm famished. I'm going to die. And Jacob says, well, I'll give you a pot of, I'll give you a pot of uh, stew if you give me your birthright, the birthright of the firstborn, which Jacob was the secondborn, as was noted. Um, and Esau says, what good is a birthright if I'm dead? Right? Like, oh, man. Okay, so he gets the birthright. Jacob gives the stew, gets the birthright. There's the first little story. Then there's a little story in this about uh, a whole other relative of theirs, another person that they encounter. Um, and then we, we kind of end up back at the tents, uh, which is the story you were talking about. So now not the bakra, but the baraka, right, with Rebecca. Oh, it's so fun. Um, now the blessing. So Isaac is ready to pass down his blessing to the firstborn son. And so he says to his son, Esau, the firstborn son, why don't you go out and why don't you hunt me something and why don't you then cook it up and bring it to me and feed me well and then I will give you my blessing. So of course Jacob and Rebecca hear, or at least Rebecca hears about this and says, oh, what should I do? I have a favorite son and it's not Esau, right? So then Rebecca says to her favorite son, Jacob, I, I think we can do this. I think we can get you the firstborn's blessing. Why don't you go prepare a lamb and I'll get some other things ready and we'll put all that hairy stuff on your neck and on your arms and when you walk into your dad, you can bring this kind of gamey meat that maybe isn't as gamey as it should be, but somehow Isaac didn't notice. Isaac is now, I missed that part of the story, Isaac is now a little bit more blind, so he's not seeing, right, the difference. And so then they, they, the two of them kind of stir the pot again and find a way to get Jacob before blind Isaac who says who asks him uh, and this is I just sorry all these things are very fun for me uh, hopefully you're enjoying it a bit um, he asks him uh, let's see are you really my son Esau and Jacob says I am my son bring me some of your game to eat so that I may give you a blessing 
So Jacob brought it to him, and he ate. This is 27, verse 25, 26 in there. Um, Brought it to him, him and ate, and he brought him some wine, and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, Come here, my son, and kiss me. And so he went, and he kissed him. And Isaac caught the smell of his clothes. And then he blessed him and said, and in there just before that, he touched him, right? And he, ah, you are my son. And I don't know. Did Jacob do what, like, sometimes I do to fake my kids out? I pretend when they say, hey, mom, can I have a bowl of cereal? And I say, no, you can't have it. And they go, dad, I know it's you, right? Did Jacob pretend that he was, <coughs> oh, yeah, dad, My, yes, I am Esau, right? Did he fake that? I'm sure he did. There's no way that he, did, that he wouldn't have, right? So he's, doing, he's living right up to his name, which was Jacob, which means grasper and deceiver kind of mixed together, right? He's living right into all those ways. Anyway, so Isaac blesses him and says, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of heaven's dew and of earth's richness and abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers. And may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. Maybe most notably in there, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. How is that heard later by Esau, of course? So, not surprisingly, uh, Jacob maybe receives the blessing and skedaddles out of there. Somehow he's not present anymore when Esau actually comes home with the game that he's hunted and the game that he's cooked. And then he comes into his father's house, into his father's tent. And uh, he says, his father says, who are you? And he says, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. So Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him. And then did he, he was blessed. And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me, me too, father, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, there's that word, and he took your blessing, the barakah. Just, I just do that for fun sometimes. Now I'm showing off. Sorry about that. I should, I'll just stop. And he took your blessing. It's fun, though. Hey, it's kind of fun. Um, anyway, Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob, right? So there his name comes. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? He deceived me. And I, I think, if, and this goes back a little, I didn't look at this in the last three days, but I feel like in the Hebrew it actually says, Jacob, Jacob to me, right? The, the deceiver deceives me, or Jacob, Jacob to me, or, you know, like it's just all playfully mixed up in all the words there together. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. He's done this to me twice two times. So all that is background, right? For then what happens next? Let me just make sure I'm following my notes at all. Otherwise, we'll be here longer. Well, we'll be here as long as a actual Bible study, which is usually an hour, which isn't normally how long we would be here together. Okay, so backing up. Yes, blessing. Oh, there, I am there. Okay. So it gets personal. Jacob's deception worked. Jacob's grasping worked. You might even wonder if Jacob's kind of saying, man, this works really, really well, right? Sometimes, uh, what's that phrase? Oh, God helps those who help themselves. And actually, you might look throughout Jacob's family history 
and see that pops up a couple times. Abraham with his wife and some deception, and all of a sudden Abraham ends up being rich. Isaac with his wife and some deception, and all of a sudden they end up being rich. Like, does God really help those who help themselves? Did the apple fall that far from the tree? Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob? Anyway, but what do you do when it happens? When big brother, and, and I think we can probably say, we can emphasize the word big brother, comes home and is so angry. Bless me, Father. Bless me. Bless me, too. How dare he do this to me twice? And so then Esau, at the end of that section, says, when my father dies, I will kill Jacob. And so Jacob goes running. And this is, I find this interesting, in the larger scheme of things. So Jacob left Beersheba, and he set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. So that's in 28 verse 11. When do we find out that the sun rises? Now we know, of course, right? Like He's gone 20 years. We know the sun sets and the sun rises every day. This is part of God's faithful providence in the world. But in the text, when does the sun rise? In our text, Genesis 32. Yeah, after he's wrestled, after he's named Jacob. So he's leaving, he's leaving his father's land, the land of his father, right? And he's going somewhere else, and the sun sets. And he goes to find his mother's land, actually, right? His mother's relative Laban. And then he comes back, and right on the border of entering back into his father's land again, the sun rises. Now, for those of us who just geek out on kind of like the narrative form of a text like this, that, I think, is intended we're supposed to, in some sense, be like, he's living in a land of light, and then for 20 years, it's like he's in a different sort of space. The sun is set, and then the sun rises again when he returns. Well, after he's wrestled, wrestled with this man, who may be God, who jumps out in the middle of the night, who, you know, touches his hip and everything that we read. Anyway, so the point would be, Jacob deceived, Jacob grasped, Jacob tricked, Jacob actually never said what his name was, right? When he's asked, well, first he's given the name Jacob. Then when he's asked, are you Jacob? He said, or are you Esau? He says, yes. And then his brother calls him, Jacob is rightly named. But Jacob never has said, I'm Jacob so far. Um, just as a note, because it shows up again. And instead, Jacob runs away. He's running away. He flees. He leaves at sunset. He comes back at sunrise as if the narrator is suggesting something, that he lived this whole time in darkness, that he'd stolen from his brother, he'd deceived his father, and he had relished in the favoritism of his mother. And now when he leaves home, the cheater gets cheated. You maybe remember that part of the story. So Jacob falls in love with Rachel. Do you remember that little part at the well? It's actually kind of fun because I think it pulls back into our story. This is a baptismal font. This is not a well. But on a well, there was a big stone cover, it says, and somewhere when he first meets Rachel, wherever that is. Um, anyway, so he's, he meets Rachel, and she needs somehow to get water for her flocks. And she says, well, we have to kind of wait till people can come and help lift the stone away. And Jacob says, oh, do we? And he moves the stone all by himself. It's just this little half a verse and this, but there's this weird suggestion that this Jacob, who's a mama's boy, somehow also has like superhuman strength, right? Like that nobody would have expected. It's just interesting later because when he's wrestling with this person who seems not to be able to overtake him, I think we as readers should be hearing back like, 
well, was he really? Like, I thought he was a mama's boy, but he somehow moved that stone. Like, it's all in the text. It's all in, hopefully, our minds as we read the text. Anyway, he leaves home. He meets Rachel, falls in love, asks Laban, can I just please marry your daughter? Laban says, sure, but first you must work for me for seven years. No, is this? Yeah, seven years. So he works for seven years, and then he goes to his marriage ceremony, which somehow, like his father, he must have been blinded enough to not see what's really going on. And all of a sudden, he wakes up in the morning and he goes, that's not Rachel. That's Rachel's sister, Leah, right? And so then they wait the appropriate amount of time. And then Laban says, I will give you Rachel too, but you must work for me for another seven years. So he's been tricked. Tricked, Laban, you tricked me. How dare you? As if it's not just kind of circling back to him, right? Like his own actions. How dare you trick me? I who tricked my brother twice. Um, Anyway, so then he works for Laban for another seven years after being married to, to both Leah and Rachel. And all the kids start popping out in this time, right? So that, and they're all sons except for Dinah. And, and so first Leah starts to have children and and Rachel's jealous, so then Rachel says, it's not working for me somehow, so why don't I give him my, my servant, my maidservant? We heard her in the text show up, right? So then all of a sudden the maidservant starts having, and then, then Leah says, well, wait a second. If we're going to work that angle, I'm going to give my maidservant too. So now Jacob's had kids with Leah and both maidservants, uh, Bilhah, and I can't remember the other person's name, uh, Zipporah? It doesn't sound right. Um, anyway, and then, and then all of a sudden we end up with Rachel finally having a son named, who's named Joseph. All that happens in these seven years, well, not the first seven, and then the next seven years, and then the six years when Jacob is also working with Laban. So in those last six years, that's when Jacob has that really intriguing thing where he puts branches in front of the, in front of the animals, and it seems like whenever Laban says, well, you can have the spotted ones, he does something, and all of a sudden, God blesses him, and all the healthy animals are the spotted animals, and then then Laban says, wait a second, we got to change up this contract, and he does something else, and all of a sudden, Jacob ends up with all the healthiest, all the strongest animals, all the best flocks, and finally, Laban's going, what is going on here? And it seems like there's a good bit of frustration, so what does Jacob do? Jacob does what Jacob always does, What does Jacob do when there's conflict? He runs away, right? So Jacob says, everybody get in the back of the van. We're out of here. So Jacob runs away again. He runs away from Laban and the conflict. Now Laban actually catches up and they have a bit of a conversation and Rachel's sitting on the the parents' idols and all that stuff is part of the intriguing part. If we were here for, you know, a half a day, we could talk about all those pieces. Anyway, Jacob runs away, right? He runs away across the threshold as the sun sets, and then he starts running back, um, always running. So here's Jacob. He's run away, and now he's running off after getting rich off of his uncle. He runs away from Laban, his uncle Laban. And now we get to this text. So here's Jacob. He sent his family away across the Jabbok. He sent all of his possessions across the Jabbok. His name is is Grasper and Deceiver. He is Jacob. And he's lived up to his name all the way through the story, finding a way to take what he wants. And now after 20 years away, outside of the land of his father, after sunset and before sunrise, um, here he comes back home. His home where he's stolen from his brother, the home where he's deceived his father, 
the home um, where he's taken advantage of his mother's uncle, right? And you wonder, could it all stay in the dark? Could it all just stay in the dark? Was he ever going to have to take off the mask? I know that's just a playful thing for the current moment, um, pandemic time, etc. cetera. Uh, was he ever gonna have to, uh, was he ever gonna have to face up to any of it? Because he's not only a deceiver, he's also a runner. And when those two come together, you may never have to face up to anything. He fled from Esau, he fled from Laban, He's never standing up. He never faces his adversary. And who knows how he tells himself the story of his life, right? How would he tell us? I mean, I was the younger brother. It doesn't come with much advantages. I'm not the stronger one. I'm not the hunter. I'm the quiet one. I'm the mama's boy. I lived, I lived at home, not hunting game. But I made my home in the tents rather than the open country. God, God knows I had no choice. I had to make what works. I had to make chance work for me. I had to, you know, God helps those who, helps him, who help themselves. A little bribery to get the birthright, a little deceit to get the blessing, topped off with a little bit of the wise as a serpent to get uh, a whole huge flock of my own. So here we are, Jacob, coming home. Who knows how he tells himself the story? All by himself, just like he was when he left. All by himself at Bethel. All by himself when the, sun, when the sun went down, now all by himself just before the sun rises, fleeing his problems, living in the dark, alone, again, until, boom. A man jumps out and starts wrestling with him in the middle of the night. And the wrestling begins, and it goes all night long. And why are they wrestling? What does the man want? The text doesn't really tell you anything about that. What does Jacob want? Is he wrestling for self-protection? All of a sudden, the man jumps out. The, the section title usually in many of our Bibles is Jacob wrestles with God. But let's be clear, the text isn't clear about that at the beginning. The text just says a man jumps out. It's a man. And the first time that we hear the word God is when, uh, when Jacob is given his new name. But if it was God, why did this God-man not prevail? Could God not overpower Jacob? Would God not overpower Jacob? Is somehow this God-man not powerful enough? How strong was Jacob? I referenced uh, Genesis 29.10 where he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well, a feat usually for multiple men. Did Jacob actually think he was going to win in this wrestling match? During the night, during this weird dark night, did he think he was going to come out ahead again? Did he think I could just grasp for what I want and I will take it, whatever it is this time? We actually don't know. I mean, when we put these stories into, into Bible children's books, we sometimes make them so clear. But the text itself is just kind of a mess. We don't know. There's ambiguity everywhere, as it is in so many biblical stories. Not everything is made absolutely crystal clear. It's like we see through a glass darkly. We live with all sorts of questions. And then just one touch, there goes the hip. Which, if you ask a wrestler, which I am not, I mean, I've had my moments, but I am not. Wrestlers seem to say, that's the center of all of your wrestling strength. If you are wrestling somebody, you need to have it right here in your core and in your hips because you're trying to flip that person over. You're trying to turn them over. This is where, and all of a sudden, that hip goes limp. 
No wrestling power left. Just one touch. Without a hip, he's got no chance of winning. No power to pin down this man, to twist him to the ground. All that he had left is what he has always had, what Jacob is known so good for from the very moment of his birth. All that he has is a tight grip to grab on for, for everything he's got. Grasp and hold on if that's what you really want. That's all he's got left. Because he finally knows what he wants out of it as we get into the text. And perhaps, perhaps after that little touch to the hip, perhaps Jacob is starting to figure out who this partner might really be. The one who changes everything with one touch. And maybe, he, and he seems to want something from this guy, this, this man, this God, this angel, this, this being that he's wrestling with. And he wants it transmitted to him through a blessing. And so he stopped. He stopped trying to dominate the God-man once the hip was touched. He stopped trying to pin him down because he had no power left to do that. But he didn't stop doing what he always has done, grasping, holding on for dear life. The man says, let me go. I will not let you go until you bless me. I will not let you out of my grasp until I get what I want from you. And Jacob gets what he wants, not without pain. Yeah, now he has a limp. More than that, I would say he has to finally say the one thing he has never said in his entire life of the story. He has to answer one question he has never answered before. The question this man asks, what is your name? Names are a big deal in the Bible. It seems like such an easy question, right? He was given his name by his mom and dad. But we know what his name means. He grasps. He grasps. He's a deceiver. He's a trickster. And the whole story is caught up in his name from the very grasping of the heel to the stealing of, of, uh, of the blessing from Isaac and, and the stealing of the birthright from Esau. When Esau says he is rightly named, he is a deceiver, he is a grasper, twice he's taken from me. What is your name? And the last time he was asked this, it was by his blind father. My son, who is it? Oh, I'm Esau, said Jacob the liar. And now he's asked, what is your name? And he has to look straight into the face of a God-man that he cannot separate from and that he doesn't even want to let go of. He has to look straight in the face of that man and say, I'm a grasper. I'm a deceiver. I take what I want and do whatever I take, it takes to get it. That's who I am. This man who's been running away, fleeing his whole life, finally he has to face up, face to face with his own story to who he is, to the darkness that he has lived within. What is your name? My name's Jacob. One word captures so much. All the ways that he's told his story before, all the excuses he's made, I had to do it. I'm the younger, I'm the smaller, I'm the weaker. I had to take what I needed, otherwise I'll have nothing. It's just a little lie. My mom made me do it. All these excuses he probably came up with for his whole life, all the excuses, they have to die. He has to die. It's a magnificent defeat. I am Jacob. What will the God-man do? What will this God-man do with the truth of this whole life 
all caught up in one word. No longer will you be named Jacob, but you will be Israel. And if we all spoke Hebrew, we'd know what he was saying. The Bible tells us anyway. You will be named Israel because you have struggled not only with men, you have struggled with God and you have overcome. Struggled with men for sure. Jacob lived with those stories in the womb all the way up till this moment with Esau, with his father, with Lacob. He struggled with men, but with God? It's just as he may, he maybe have guessed. He was wrestling with God. Was he? Tell me your name, Jacob says. Please tell me your name. Clarify for me this big mess that, I, that I'm in and I don't quite know. Like, who are you? Tell me your name. Why do you ask me my name? Perhaps we're going to never know for sure. Why did he ask for a name? Did he need just a little affirmation? Did he, did he feel vulnerable finally having shared who he was with somebody face to face, unmasked? having shared himself but not getting to know the heart, the center of his sparring partner? Was he uncomfortable with the vulnerability? Was he uncomfortable with the mystery? Did he just want to know, who am I with? The strange mystery of the presence of God. Aren't we sometimes wrestling with that same mystery of the presence of God? This ambiguity? of our lives, of our story, the mystery, even the pain of, of having to face God face to face when we've been running away for whole portions of our life. When Jacob stops trying to dominate God and he clings to God instead, when he finally looks at God face to face and he stops trying to hide in the dark, but he tells the truth of his whole life, Jacob, liar, deceiver, trickster. I am Jacob. That is the source, the beginning of the transformation. That's the beginning of the blessing. And God binds himself to Jacob. He gives him the best of himself. He, his blessing, he binds him, he binds his very self to Jacob in the blessing. You have wrestled with God and you have overcome. And he's given a new name. He's blessed he is bound up with God for the rest of his life. And he names the place Peniel because he has seen the face of God and his life was spared. And the sun rises and he passed the face of God, limping, never able to run away again, never able to run away again limping. What do we do with this story? I mean, this is where sometimes we don't even get to this in a Bible study. We just enjoy it all, and we kind of say, come back next week. What did you hear in that whole story? But I'll point in a couple directions today, because I won't see you next week. I, I don't think. Well, I guess I'm in Iron Springs next week, so no, I won't see you next week. One I feel like Israel keeps a story like this around because we all live this story. We all struggle in the dark. We struggle with our darkness. 
are we willing to wrestle it through with God? And when we find that we cannot pin God down, that we cannot dominate God, do we simply cling as well? Do we simply reach out and hold on and ask God for his blessing? The only thing, I don't know even who you are for sure. All I know is I want your blessing and I won't let go. Do we ask for his presence? Even when it's a bit ambiguous, even when it won't quite unravel all the mystery of God's presence with us, even when it doesn't make everything crystal clear, like, oh boy, do we wish we could not see through a glass darkly anymore. Do we long for God's blessing, even when we know it may hurt, when it may change us, transform us to our very core? This is who the people of God are. The entire community was named after this moment. Israel, you are all now people of Israel. You are no longer welcome to say, I just don't care. You are no longer a part of a community that says, ah, whatever, it's all good. You are all part of a community that is named for wrestling with God. Face to face, bound to him, clinging to him, blessed by him, transformed by God. So do we wrestle with God? Second, pointing in a direction. The limp. That limp is this strange part of the story for a guy who runs away from all of his conflicts to never be able to run away again. I don't know exactly what that means in terms of your story, but it feels like for the last 10 months, our whole society, our whole globe has been thrown into something like a limp. Everything has changed. And probably in the midst of it, we've all come face to face with parts of ourselves that that we just wish we didn't have to say, my name is Paul. My name is Jacob. This is actually who I am. There's parts about the last 10 months that have had whole piles of us unmask ourselves. And And society has come alongside and helped in painful ways, right? Around racism in the U.S., for instance. What's going on? This whole whatever is going on in the States with the election has been very complicated. January 6th, when people storm a Capitol building, like what, to what degree is that also our story? I know we're Canadians. It's easier for us sometimes to watch these, some of us anyway, to watch these news clips with a bag of popcorn and be like, that's happening over there. But is it also part of us needing to come face to face with ourselves? And realize that maybe there's something in this limp that actually is a gift for us to be transformed. But maybe the last piece is that there's another magnificent defeat that is part of the story of Israel. We are the people of Israel. There's this whole nation called the people of Israel. Then we're kind of gathered in as Gentiles into this nation of Israel. That's how, that's how the New Testament kind of imagines it. But there's one person who embodies the life of Israel like nobody else. The Lord Jesus Christ, the one we call Savior, who went from his father's land into another place that probably felt an awful lot like darkness, who wrestled with death, who wrestled with sin, who died and now in the season of Epiphany, we talk about how, and we sang that in one of our songs, we talk about how he, in his resurrection, brings light back into the world. This, all these stories of Israel 
always, always, always at some point help us understand what happened in the life of Jesus in this magnificent defeat where Jesus died on a cross. And not just one life, but an entire cosmos is transformed in his resurrection. Transformed. Because God wrestled with what we all wrestle with. Our sin, our brokenness, our death. And he won in this weird, magnificent defeat. Jacob was alone both those times. Christ was alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we are never alone again. A God who will never abandon us, never forsake us, never leave us alone on the side of a river, but will come and continue to wrestle with us till we are all transformed into the image of Christ that we are called to be individually and community, as communally as the new Israel. This is our calling. It reminds me of one phrase. When we are weak, then we are strong. In the name of Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Our God, our Father, I thank you for these weird and wild, ambiguous, mysterious stories, but thank you that in the end we see them so clearly in the life and the death and the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. We still live in a world where our stories are a good bit complicated. We might just want clarity. What is your name anyway? What is it that makes me keep doing these hard and painful things that I don't want to do, the things I don't want to do, and the things that I want to do I don't do? What is it in me? Help us to keep coming back to you, looking you face to face, and recognizing in your face the face of grace, that even as we confess our sins, we know we do so in the assurance of pardon. We do not only every Sunday, we do every time we come face to face with you. We see the truth of ourselves, but more so we see the truth and the goodness and the grace of our God who calls us his children because you are, as we prayed, our Father in heaven through it all. May your name be holy. Amen.